Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I want to lift up a few things before we climb into our sermon that you have um, prepared us for and prepared for us. Uh, I want to pray, first of all, for uh, unreached people groups in Peru. Lord, uh, nine people groups that we know of that are completely unreached in a land that is uh, very reached. Lord, we ask for folks in Peru uh, who are believers, Lord, we ask that you would raise up workers. We ask for uh, workers to be raised up here uh, in, in the States or other places that would go to these unreached folks. Lord, we pray that you would put a burden on hearts, uh, that you would put a, a good message on a, on a mouth, and uh, that beautiful feet would carry good news to uh, folks who don't know you. And um, Lord, too, we want to pray for another church in our community. Uh, Pecan Grove Church of Christ, just right right across the street. Uh, thankful for uh, the opportunity to share geography with them, Lord, and a, a, a ministry in Greenville. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would bless Pecan Grove Church of Christ, that they would, um, the pastors there, elders there, would, would have a, a sweet um, walk together, a sweet journey together, and work together as they serve your people there, Lord. We are uh, asking you to uh, just beautify the bride there and prepare her for your son's return. And uh, in that, whatever way you put on our minds or hearts or circumstances to come alongside them and serve alongside them, Lord, we, we want to be faithful and obedient to do that. We are cheering for them this morning and asking you to bless them even in this hour as they gather for corporate worship. Uh, Lord, um, also this, this uh, morning, we want to pray for our service members and uh, those um, families that have folks that are either on active duty or deploying or are reservists that are mobilizing, Lord, we pray that you would bless these families that are, um, are serving in difficult climes and places uh, by either going or sending. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would, would give them a peace, that you would give them a, a sense of purpose and meaning, and uh, the, the work would, would uh, be worship for them, actually. And for those who don't know you who are in uh, difficult places and in harm's way, Lord, we pray that those who are yours in those contexts will be uh, salty, bright, and aromatic, and we'll be sharing with others uh, the good news and the hope that we have in Christ, even as they're in harm's way. Uh, Lord, we are entrusting these folks to you, entrusting our time to you in these next few minutes. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> read an interesting article this week. It was in a journal in 1987. I'm not sure when this actually happened. It's a, an article that a, a teacher wrote. Her name is Virginia Stem Owens. She taught English at Texas A&M University. So if this was 1987, she's uh, writing about a freshman English class that may have been uh, a class that I wasn't in that, her class. She wasn't my freshman teacher, uh, but I was in freshman English in 1986. So it may very well have been a, some of my contemporaries that were in this class that she's writing, she's writing about. I'm just going to share some excerpts from it because I think it's important. And I think it sets a nice stage for us for these next few minutes. <clears throat> Most of the students in my university come from middle-class conservative Republican families. It was very much the case in 1987. The vices here, like values, are traditional. Weekend drunkenness and sexual promiscuity, things that a parent can understand. Therefore, when I assessed my, or excuse me, when I assigned my freshman English class, 
the Sermon on the Mount, a selection in their rhetoric textbook taken from the King James Version, I expected them to have at least a, a nodding acquaintance with the reading and to express a modicum of piety in their written responses. After all, Texas has always been considered at least marginally part of the Bible Belt. So the first paper I picked up began, In my opinion, religion is one big hoax. Okay, I'm going to read some just excerpts. Um, the next paper she picked up said, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. That's the second paper she picked up. The third paper she picked up began, it's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago. And also, the Bible says nothing about dinosaurs, and I think God would have mentioned them. She said, I put down my red pen. This was no fluke. What I had here was a major trend. She goes on to say that as she's trying to make sense of this, that she sort of developed two questions. And the first question was, why were these students, first of all, so angry at what they read? Why were they angry? And second of all, other students had a blithe dismissal of the content, just treated it like it was meaningless. She says, she confesses her own story. She said, my introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a child in Sunday school had been accompanied by a pastel poster illustrations of Jesus sitting like a patient Mr. Uh, Mr. Rogers on a green hillside surrounded by eager pink children. That's so good. I wonder if I can't believe y'all don't enjoy that as much as I do. I really, I grew up in the, I know that pastel poster. I think the very poster with little pink children and Mr. Rogers sitting there in green grass. It had never occurred to me either to be angry or to turn away from such a scene. She said she read on in these next papers. These are some of the things that she gathered to at least answer the first question, why were they so angry at what they read? Here's some more quotes from some of what she read. The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it's a sin or not. Here's another one. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard, an essay. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Here's another one. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard. She goes on to say, at this point I began to be encouraged. There's something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was not exactly intellectual agnosticism talking here, usually the perceived foe of the faith. It was just down-home hedonism. It was Herod watching Salome dance. It was the disciples asking, who then can be saved when Jesus deflated their dreams of wealth with a needle's eye? This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through a two-millennial cultural haze. She goes, on to, she, she goes on to comment about some of those that just dismissed it, but she kind of comes to a summary statement that I thought was important and a nice intro to this morning. She said, so what do I make of these responses? I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. For me, somehow that validates its significance. What I hope to find out in these next few minutes as if the Sermon on the Mount has offended you at all yet. If it's interrupted you yet. Let's climb into Matthew chapter 5. We'll come back to some of those observations later. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We'll be looking at the first of what are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Last week, we spent the entire morning translating the word blessed, retranslating the word blessed, or really going with what is a better translation in the original language, the word flourishing. And I'm going to frequently use that word over the course of the morning and frequently over these next few weeks as we are dealing with the Beatitudes. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. And instead of the word for, I'm going to be replacing that with a word that's a better translation of the original language, the word because. It kind of changes the impact of the beatitude. It changes the way you read it. So here's how I'm going to be treating this passage over the course of the morning. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So my plan of attack here is to deal with three questions. So if you're kind of trying to figure out where we are, if you need kind of a, a, you need a, an audible map, you'll kind of know where we are in these questions. Uh, probably the most, most amount of our time is going to be spent on the first question Who are these flourishing people? These people who are poor in spirit. Secondly, less portion time-wise, but a very important question. What are they experiencing? What exactly is this thing, this poverty of spirit? And third, which I have just a brief uh, treatment and really we'll just be dealing with it in, in way of a parable. A brief parable. Asking, answering the question, why are they flourishing? Why are they flourishing? So the three questions. Who are these flourishing people? Secondly, what are they experiencing? And third, why are they flourishing? Okay, let's first deal with who are these people, these poor in spirit. that, That phrase there is not defined anywhere else in our Bible, verbatim. That'd be really helpful, wouldn't it? I mean, we could just make a beeline to that passage. We could call it a satellite. We could just move on. But what we're going to do in these next few minutes is just work with what we've got. We've got the word poor, and then we've got the little phrase there, the qualifying phrase, in spirit. So this this first part of the sermon, it was probably the most sizable portion of the sermon, we're going to spend exploring this word poor and who the poor are and what God's disposition is toward the poor, and then we're going to work on in, in, in spirit, Okay. So let's deal first with poor. Now, let me just acknowledge, you might feel like, oh, this seems a little bit contrived for us to deal with just the word poor and not in spirit altogether and almost a little forced. Let me maybe help you with the notion that it might be really time well spent dealing with just poverty and the poor first because there's a version of this sermon that's called the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, and that's not verbatim. It's in the book of Luke. It's very similar content, but they call it the Sermon on the Plain. There's Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain over here in Luke. And Luke shares, or in Luke, there's a lot of the same content. There's a version of the Beatitudes there in, the, in, in, in Luke chapter 6. You can explore that on your own. It's an interesting parallel. There's, there's Beatitudes, and then listed right after them are a list of woes. Okay? And among those Beatitudes, there's a version of this Beatitudes listed. And it actually reads exactly like this. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, like poor. There's no in spirit in there. So if you're wondering, is this contrived? I don't think it's contrived at all. We're going to spend a few minutes just considering God's disposition toward the poor and what that might tell us about what God is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. First of all, God apparently really loves the poor. I'm just share a little brief survey of a few passages in the book of the Old Testament about God's disposition toward poverty. I'm talking real physical. I'm not talking metaphor right now. I'm talking about real poverty, real poor people. 
Okay, so here's just a few passages. You can jot these down. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. But I'm not really going to be peering into the, the passage beyond just sort of drawing out a little quick survey. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Okay, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, is, this is the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land. They've wandered in the wilderness. They're going to cross the Jordan on dry ground and then go into the promised land. And Moses is going to die this side of the promised land, this side of the Jordan. But he's giving these instructions, these last instructions in the book of Deuteronomy before they go into the promised land. This is how you're supposed to live, people of God. This is how you're supposed to move. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. I mean, very specific instructions. There are a lot of them in the book of Deuteronomy about how uh, the people of God are to treat the poor. It looks like God has a special place for the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he counts on it. Man, don't you love the fact that we have a God that cares about the details for a poor person that needs their payment that day because they actually count on eating that day based on what they're paid that day. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry, cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Here are a couple of passages from the book of Proverbs. Okay, we're going to fast forward into the wisdom literature. We're reading this Deuteronomy context. Here, here's how you're going to live when you go into the promised land. Fast forward to some wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults, not him, but insults his maker. Whoa, sounds like there's a connection there. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. It's kind of ambiguous. Who's him? Well, it's the needy, but it's also the Lord. It honors his maker. You see that beautiful connection between the poor and our God? Here's another one, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Huh. And he will repay him for his deed. You see this connection between God and the poor. Here's the Psalms. We're going to fast forward into the Psalms, chapter 35, verse 10. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 35, all my bones shall say. I mean, I wonder if this psalmist in this case was not a poor person. He says, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Man, that's the kind of God that we have right here that loves the poor. One of the indictments against the nation of Israel, you remember they're given this charge as they go into the promised land. Fast forward to the exiles. One of the indictments against the people of God during the exiles is you are not tending to the poor. It wasn't just idolatry. They had ashram poles up everywhere and idolatry going on everywhere under every green tree. You know that image, that stark, difficult image of the whoredom, the real rough language. What was right up there with it was the treatment of the poor. And here's what he says in Isaiah. He says, what do you mean in chapter 3, verse 15? What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? 
declares the Lord of hosts. In chapter 41, verse 17, he says, When the poor and needy seek water, there and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Man, I, if we had a room full of poor folk in here, boy, we would be grinning. I would have heard some amens. We would have heard some grunts and groans because we know that that's the kind of God that we have. Problem is we're the richest people in the world. I mean, we are. Let's, you may not realize this. You might sit here and think, hey, I have a tough time paying my bills. He's talking about me. I'm not talking about you. I don't know anybody in here that's really, truly poor. I think we're all pretty well fed, pretty well clothed from the look of it. We're all covered up with fresh clothes for the most, most part. Most of us live in houses. I think maybe all of us. Man, it's hard for us to relate to how a poor church would have heard those passages. But let's just acknowledge right here and right now, whatever we are, we have a God that loves poor people. He loves the poor and needy. Those are all from the Old Testament. Let me just share a couple of passages with you from the news, just so we kind of climb into the ton- context of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? That, that's background for what led up to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, as Jesus is stepping up on this mountain and he's sharing this message. You know what's background here is this context of a few thousand years of God caring for and tending to the poor. Okay, so let's just climb into the very context. Just a couple of passages to look at in Matthew. This is less a survey and just two passages I want you to look at. So actually I do want you to turn to these. Matthew chapter 11 and the other is Luke chapter 16. So you can kind of have both of those ready. I'll give you a minute to turn. Matthew 11 and Luke 16. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. This is a, let me just admit to you, this is a very confusing passage for me. Okay, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. I don't know why he's asking this question, but he is. There's some other information there that we don't have context. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Okay, this is what I do. It's like a summary of this is my movement as the, the, the Savior, the Messiah come, the promised Messiah. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. We're not talking metaphor. I mean, we are, but we're not only talking metaphor. We're talking about real blind people that, bing, they actually could see. Okay, we're talking about real blind people. John chapter 9, those kind of blind people. And the lame walk talking about people that are laying by the pool of Bethesda that actually can stand up and dance and shout and jump around. Talking about, we're not talking metaphor and figurative stuff. Okay? We're talking about lepers that are cleansed, like real ten lepers that walk off and they all walk over to the, to, the, to the priest and only one comes back and says thanks. Remember that story? We're talking about real lepers with real leprosy. They're cleansed. Deaf people hear and the dead are raised. And this one, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, just listen, I want you to just consider a few of the things that are captured there. The blind, the lame, the leprous, the deaf, the dead, and grouped in there with him as who Christ came for are the poor. He says, I'm healing all these things, and guess what I'm doing for the, for the poor? I'm preaching good news to the poor because God loves poor people. 
Okay? I'm building something here, so you just need to follow along with me. God loves poor people. All right, look at Luke chapter 16. This is a crazy passage. <clears throat> it's a parable. Okay, beginning in verse 19. And I want you to just imagine something before I read this little, little parable. I want you to imagine that this was our Bible. I mean, just this passage. Just imagine this weird thing, okay? I'm making a point here where you can just imagine that the whole Bible, a like really tiny little Bible because it's just this verse. Like you only had this verse about how you go to heaven, who goes to heaven, and who goes to hell. Okay, if you only had this passage, we're just imagining something for a moment, okay? We have more, thankfully, but just imagine if this is all you had. There's a rich man who, clothed, who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. I love that word. I love sumptuous food. I mean, let's not, let's not, I mean, let's acknowledge together we all are going to enjoy this notion of sumptuous feasting. He did it every day. And at his gate, though, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Right, that's idiom for, uh, or figurative for heaven. Okay, he's gone, Abraham's with the Lord, he's going to be with Abraham at his side. Okay? The rich man also died and was buried and is in Hades. That's another word for hell. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and there's old Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the the, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. All right, let me just ask you for a minute. If this is the only Bible that you had, first of all, what, I mean, how would you walk away from any other interpretation than rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven? If that was all we had... If this parable was all we had that gave us information about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, we'd walk away going, well, poor people go, and we'd be getting rid of our stuff, wouldn't we? <laughs> how, can I, how fast can I get rid of all my goods and stop eating sumptuously? There's probably also that implied message in, in there that you can have a bunch of stuff, but if you're not caring for poor Lazarus at your gate, you're hell-bound. Man, there's a strong imagery that comes from that. But as I'm looking at it, I asked a couple of questions. I said, they need to repent of what? If he's going to send someone back to speak to his brothers, what do they actually need to, to repent of? Being rich? Maybe. Or maybe just repent of not caring for Lazarus. Whatever the case, man, that would be a great sermon. I think it would be an interesting sermon. Spend the whole morning on that, wouldn't it? But let's just take the flavor of it and recognize right off the bat, it sure looks like God loves poor people. It sure looks like God loves poor Lazarus. And in this case, if this is all we had, we'd walk away with the notion that he's going to give salvation to poor people. Man. You know, Jesus talked about money a lot. I found some interesting st statistics. Uh, 
16 of the 38 parables in our Gospels um, are about money and possessions. 16 of the 38 are about money and possessions. One of 10 verses, this is staggering, one of 10 verses in the Gospels deal directly with money. I, I didn't misread that. I didn't misspeak that. One of 10 verses in the Gospels speak of money. And many of them have to do with God's love for poor people and God's special care for poor people and, the flip side of that, the dangers of riches. But what this did for me, just camping out on that word poor, and I think fairly in light of the Sermon on the Plain, it made me wonder what is it about poor people that God loves so much? I mean, are you wondering? What is it about poor people that God loves so much? Or maybe a better question is, what is it about poor people that love God so much? Isn't that a good question? Because you can flip that around and say, what is it about rich people that make God hard to love? Or make it, make it for them hard to love God might be a better way to phrase that. Man, I think that's a great question. It's one that I did some exploring on this week. Let me share a study with you. Uh, this, uh, some interesting content of, of some research. Uh, a guy named Paul Piff, funny name. Paul Piff at the University of California, California Berkeley, ran a series. Okay, we're kind of exploring the question of what, what is it in poor people that God seems to love so much? What is it about poverty? Okay, and what might be uh, difficult, or what might be in the rich person that makes it hard for them to love God? Okay, this guy, Paul Piff at the University of California, Berkeley, ran a series of experiments to observe how those who have more money behave in a given situation. It's fascinating. He compared, uh, compared to those with less. Okay? He found that players in a rigged game of Monopoly... He set up this, this system in this Monopoly game uh, who were awarded twice the money as their opponent, who were allowed to roll both dices compared with the other dices. He observed that they began to display behaviors that were dominant, loud, and aggressive. Okay? He hasn't differentiated between rich people and poor people in this study. It's just, he probably... Remove that bias altogether. All, all same socioeconomic class. He put this test in front of him. You get double the money, and you get to roll your dice twice. And the other guys only get half of that, this guy's money, and roll your die once. Okay? So here's what happened. Behaviors began to manifest in these who were making more money in the game. They became dominant, loud, and aggressive. They moved their coins around the board with a thud, ate more of the free snack, and spoke loudly. Isn't, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Listen to what he said. At the end of the game, when they were questioned, they attributed their success to their strategy and skill. <laughs> what? Completely sidestepping the fact that they entered the game with privilege. Researchers explain that the rich tend to rationalize their advantage and believe that they deserved it. Man, that's hard to love, isn't it? If we're going to talk about what's so easy to love in poor people, what's really hard to love in rich people? You ever heard that quote? A key Walker would be able to tell me, is it Barry Switzer or Schweitzer? Switzer. Okay, I, I, he's a coach, I guess. I don't even know who he is. But he had a great quote. Some people live their life like they were born on third base, but they hit a triple. They live their life like they were born on third base in reality, but they live like and treat others like they hit a triple. 
man, that's the problem with these guys playing this game. That's what's so hard to love about rich people. It makes me think of the six things, no seven things that the Lord hates, and among them are haughty eyes. Look at me. Look what I accomplished. Look how awesome I am. We haven't even talked metaphoric yet, metaphoric stuff yet, have we? We're just talking physical stuff. Can you already begin to apply these attitudes in faith directions, in spiritual directions? And imagine what kind of Christian that would make. A Christian that has the attitude that, man, I had, I had a triple being up in this house. When really, buddy, you were born on third base. Okay, we had, we'll get there in a moment. But let's just talk about poor for a minute. What is it about the poor that God loves so much? It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? You imagine being needy? I think the only real true exposure that I've ever had to real need was in Somalia. Had three months on the ground in Somalia. And thankfully the Lord gives you mechanisms to cope with stuff you see when you're in it. But in the years after, you think back, humans experiencing real, profound need. Man, there's something about poverty that just says, I'm needy. They're not putting on airs. I didn't see anybody out there putting on airs. Man, they weren't a proud bunch. I didn't see any haughty eyes. The only haughty eyes I saw were the people that had weapons and had what their form of currency were was food. They were the rich. But the poor man, they were low, humble, needy, dependent. This article had an interesting uh, observation I'll share this with you. Something else that I think that's interesting about poor people is sort of brought out in the contrast. The writer of this article says, We were out shopping when a store assistant began to show disproportionate attention to a fellow shopper. She decided quickly, the shopper did, bought a few high-value items and left the store. Peaked. What in the world? We asked the assistant how he figured, about, how he figured among so many shoppers which one was the rich one. And his answer was simple. She did not care to look at or be interested in anyone else in the shop. She focused only on the goods. <laughs> in contrast, Paul, uh, Pia Dietz and Eric Knowles studied how social, classes, how social class differences influence how we process information. They confirmed the simple perception of our store assistant. Poorer people are more likely to notice, engage with, and pay attention to and empathize with other human beings compared to the rich. Man, there's a lot to like in poor people, right? When I think about just blank, just poor poverty by itself, that's the kind of man I want to be <laughs> that cares about others, that empathizes with others, that is attentive to others. That is generous with others. You know who the most generous people are in the world? The poorest people in the world. You know the maxim of the more you have, the stingy you are? That holds true. Mostly. The most generous people in the world are the poorest people in the world. Man, that, everything about poor people I like. Everything about them I want to be. God loves and cares for poor people. They're all that the world despises. I mean, let's acknowledge that. The world's not going to say, hey, go, go be poor. 
Go be needy. Go be dependent. Jesus, though, commends the attitude and the disposition of the poor with the very first words in this sermon. Man, I think it's huge. I think it's huge. He did qualify it, though. We need to acknowledge that he qualified it. I mean, I'm not preaching Luke, chapter, chapter 6. I'm not preaching Luke, uh, you know, the, the Sermon on the Plain. If we were preaching the Sermon on the Plain, we might just leave it at that. If we were responsible, we'd probably add in the Spirit. We'd probably jump over to Matthew 5. But I am preaching chapter 5 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's deal with the qualifying phrase. Okay, I want you to carry all the imagery, all the need, all the feels of poverty over into now this phrase, in spirit. The Greek word there is pneumati. Okay, it means breath. When it's used in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, it's referring mostly, almost every single time, to God the Spirit, capital S. If you're wondering when you know, the Spirit is referring to you or referring to God the Spirit, you can notice capitalization helps. Our ESV is really good at that if you, can, if you have the ESV Bible. Okay, most of the references to Spirit in the book of Matthew are capital S, referring to God the Spirit. There are, but a couple, though, that are lowercase s. This is one of those, the poor in lowercase spirit. So what is this spirit thing? The only other, there's two other places that I could find in Matthew where they're referenced. One is in Matthew chapter 12 where he's referencing unclean spirits. Of course, that's not going to be capitalized. We wouldn't want that to be. That's referring to evil spirits. The other place is in Matthew chapter 26. If you'd like to, you can turn there. Otherwise, I'll just share the passage with you and help you kind of uh, understand where I'm going with this distinction. Matthew chapter 26. Here we go. It's on the night of Jesus' arrest. He's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's he's, uh, carried, uh, invited Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, are with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled, it says. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, Father, my spirit, or, or say, saying, my, uh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know how the story goes, you know, the sweating drops of blood sort of uh, imagery in the other gospels. And he came to the disciples, James and John and Peter, and he found them sleeping. Okay, he brought these guys with him. He's, these guys are going to be prayer warriors. And he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, Peter and James and John, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit, lowercase s, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, uh, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Spirit's willing, man, I cannot imagine these guys on this night weren't all in. He'd washed their feet that night. They'd had that dramatic moment where Judas got up and ran out of the room. Is it me? Is it me? No, it's Judas. He ran out of the room. They'd had this supper where he tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. Peter said, I'm not on my watch. You're not. All that's happened in that night. Man, can you imagine? Their spirit is willing, man. I'm going to go pray for my Savior, my King, my Rabbi, my Jesus. But they're sleepy, man. They're sleepy. Their flesh is just weak. 
spirit and the flesh are intertwined in these guys. And there's one part willing and there's one part weak. It seems as if in Christ he's making this distinction between this willing spirit and this weak flesh. This willing spirit is this inner man. This inner thing that Peter and James and John brought to that garden saying, I want to pray like a warrior. But it's wrapped up and intertwined with this flesh that just said, no, you're not. Man, I think he's pointing to this encouragement here. This is what he's commending here is poverty in the inner man. And we're going to maybe flesh out in this next few moments why that played out for Peter and James and John that way and my, why, my, why it might play out for you that way and how that can be a place where you flourish. All right, so here we dealt with that first question. We'll deal with the second one here in these next couple minutes. I've wrangled with the question, why is this in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount? I plan my introductions to my sermons. I think about them all week long. Some of them I think weeks out. I'm not that prepared, but occasionally I'll think of one for a sermon coming. But I think, man, for me at least, the introduction to the sermon hopefully is connected to the rest of the sermon, right? I think I've had one introduction in 16 years that did not land in a way that was connected to the rest of the sermon at all, and that was that Olympic skier who really wasn't an Olympic skier. Y'all remember that? I just wanted to see the video. I thought it was hilarious. I tried some way to weave it in the sermon, but it failed. But for the most part, your introduction is going to be related to your sermon, right? I mean, you can imagine that. If you're going to preach a sermon, your introduction, you're going to be connected. Why would he do anything different? Why would his introduction, the first words out of his mouth, have to, have to do with poverty in the inner man, poverty in spirit, and then he go preaches the rest of the sermon? For us, it's going to unfold over weeks and months and maybe even years. For him, it unfolded, and for the hearer in that moment. They heard it all in one sitting. And the introductory words had to do with poverty in the inner man. So I'm wrestling with this question, why is these, the, the, the beginning words in this sermon? And then I thought, you know, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, really, have you read it? Have you put that pastel poster, have you pulled it down from the wall and set it aside? With the pink children, you know that one? Mr. Rogers sitting in the green grass. Have you set aside to let it really clobber you? Have you really read it? I mean, that, it just occurred to me, what, what a beautiful introduction to this sermon. Dealing with poverty in the inner man. Because I think this is where, where it connects. Poverty in the inner man is a guarantee of what you will experience if you aim to walk out what's in the rest of the sermon. It's a, in the words of, of uh, Justin Wilson, it's a guarantee. It's a, a guarantee. Poverty in the inner man is something you will experience because you are living in this relentlessly weak flesh while you have a willing spirit. Man, just think about this for a moment. Turn back over to Matthew 5. Most of the sermon's over. I want you to hang with me. This is, I, I think this is where it's going to kind of come together. I hope. Here's where I hope you'll be interrupted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Jesus in the same sermon. I mean, this this might be months from now before we get to this passage, but in the context, it was a few breaths later. He's on to verse 19. 
He's just said, flourishing are the poor in spirit, theirs, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here a few minutes later, he says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, you, you mean you want me to do these things? I thought you just want me to teach them. Because I can teach them. I mean, that's kind of easy. That's what he said. He, that does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that, when you read a passage like that, if you don't go, if you don't swallow hard and go, holy cow, he actually wants me to do this stuff? He actually wants me to not continue in anger with a brother? You mean he wants me to not talk about him behind their back, carry around bitterness, make fun of him? Gossip about him. He didn't want me to do that. You mean he wants me to actually go to them and to reconcile? You mean, can I just teach about that instead? It's a lot easier to teach about and to hear and go, yeah, amen, than to actually do. Has anybody else experienced this willing flesh or this willing spirit, but then your flesh, you're going, I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. I can't come to church on that Sunday when he's preaching about it. I I can never do that. That's just one of them. Did you read the rest of the sermon? He doesn't want you to be angry with you, brother. He wants you to actually seek them out and be reconciled. I borrowed this. I didn't. I don't carry a knife this manly. This is manly. This thing looks like like some out of a movie. Todd Higgins carries with him everywhere. Fireman. Probably save people with this joker right here. This thing's awesome. I was thinking about this, you know, as I'm reading a passage about gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand so you don't look at another woman with lust. Have you actually read the Sermon on the Mount? Unfiltered? Have you let it clobber you? I mean, really? I think you're going to be poor in spirit as you aim to do that. You're going to experience this disparity between this flesh and this uh, willing spirit. Do not resist the evil one. Does anybody want to say that's easy stuff? Resisting the, not resisting the evil one. Turning the other cheek. Ah, that's so easy. I love just turning over when someone's coming after me. Mm, I come by that natural. Said no one ever. Loving your enemies? I mean, did we read the rest of this thing and really let it clobber us? Loving, loving your enemies? Okay, well, I'll love them. I won't speak to them. I won't look at them. I won't spend time with them. I don't even want to share space and air with them, but I love them in kind of a Christian sense. You want me to love my enemies and you want me to pray for those who persecute me? Wow. Lord, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is sure enough weak. Man, seriously. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, I really read it. Like hopefully with unfiltered eyes, I think to myself, to myself, how can you be proud? How could you think for a moment that you hit a triple? 
in any area of your life. When I see in the, in, in the, in, among the people of God, if we move that way, I think to myself, how can you be so proud? How can you be so unteachable? How can you continue in bitterness? Aren't you ravaged too? Haven't you been clobbered as well? Haven't you been leveled to just like, like you're on your face? Going, my flesh is willing, or my spirit's willing, but my flesh is horribly, relentlessly weak. Man, how can we have so little margin? Man, this Sermon on the Mount, I'm telling you, it should interrupt us. Diedrich von Bonhoeffer, this is, this is a reference. I've been, been saying this. I think, what are these people experiencing? That was the second question. I, think, I love this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. <laughs> Man, I'm going to tell you right now, I've been interrupted by God in this Sermon on the Mount. I asked you all to read the Sermon on the Mount and to ponder it. I've asked you how many, how many weeks, maybe four weeks now, five weeks or so, we've been kind of leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. I've asked you to read it. All right, this may destroy me, but I'm less concerned about being destroyed and more concerned about a diagnostic. Okay, this is the question. And if you lie in this, I'm telling you, that's like an express ticket to hell, all right? I'm being facetious. He'll forgive this lie. Don't lie. How many of y'all have read the Sermon on the Mount in the last three or four weeks? Some people are like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I did that one thing. <laughs> hey, that was more than I thought, actually. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's commendable. That says a lot about this people. I, I wasn't expecting the word. Maybe I, I wasn't expecting something terrible. But as I, I'm... As I ask that question, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, man, I had a few minutes to look at y'all while we're preaching, and it looks like everybody in the room has their eyeballs. I mean, it might be somebody in here with a glass eye. That'd be hard to tell from up here. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure everybody's got their, their eyes. I think everybody's got their hands. Oh, wow, I thought that thing was going down. Lost my pen. I don't see anybody walking around going, man, stop me. I haven't had to calm anybody's nerves. It's been, in, been interrupted by this, this sermon yet that's saying, man, stop me. What am I supposed to do with this? Where I've been able to say, no, put the knife down. Let's cancel your internet service instead. Some of the ladies are looking at me. You don't know what I'm talking about. Every man in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Let's get rid of your cell service since pornography is one click away. Man, have we been interrupted yet? Maybe we'll wait till we get to that passage. Let's not wait. Let's be interrupted now and together be poor in spirit as we have willing, willing spirits but weak flesh. And together we aim to walk this out. Man, I'm just asking, have you been interrupted yet? Everybody have their coat and their tunic? Anybody missing their tunic? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody have a red cheek from being slapped in the face? Or but even better yet, both of them red? Anybody? 
this stuff is, I mean, we're in the lives right now where these things get to play out. We're not talking figurative stuff for the, the life you're going to live in the future someday. We're talking about the lives you're living right now in Greenville, Texas, right now, in the circumstances that you're in, where you get to turn the other cheek, where you get to go follow any means necessary to stave off looking at another woman with lust, where you get to walk out reconciling with a brother, excruciating as it can be. We're talking about right now, have you been interrupted? You've got to realize, people of God, we can come every Sunday. I can preach up here every Sunday. Y'all can come and and attend every Sunday. There's the potential for us to sit and talk about all this, to listen to it, to read it. You could even say, ooh, I read it, though. I read it. I could say, I taught it. We can ponder it. We can talk about it in life groups. We can imagine how awesome it all is, all this, 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 these words from the Lord, this completely otherworldly message, and it might potentially not even find a place in us because we haven't still been interrupted. We've got to be interrupted, people. You want to know what changes the world? When people are interrupted. This sermon is about being salty, bright, and aromatic. In a dark, decaying world. It's about being different. Right here in Greenville, Texas. Right in your circumstances. Not your imaginary circumstances. Not the ones in the future, but the ones you're in right now. The stuff that we're living in right now. The warp and woof of life. We have the chance and opportunity to be bright and aromatic and salty in a decaying, dark world. And when, if you endeavor to do that, guess what? You're going to experience poverty in the inner man. It's going to be hard. It's going to be offensive in some ways. You won't live there. You remember he said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You might be offended and caught off guard and clobbered, but then you're going to say, you know what, Lord? I want to walk this out whatever it costs me. Whatever it means to me, how I'm disassembled and decreated, recreate me into the person, the image of your son. Because that's who I am, as one of yours. That, that issue, that contrast, that paradox is where you're going to find this poverty of spirit that is in and of itself flourishing. What he's commending here is a passage in Isaiah 66 that I thought captured it nicely. It's the only other place I could find that really captured the spirit of this. We're about to get to our parable. Just listen to this passage. But this is the one to whom I will look. Just take out one and put family in there. This is the family to whom I will look. Take out church. This is the church to whom I will look. He who is humble, the same word there in Hebrew is the word that's used all over our Old Testaments for poor. He who's poor, humble, afflicted is what that word means. And contrite, which also means crippled and bruised in spirit and trembles at my word trembles at my word reads the words of doing this you mean you actually want me to do it and then says I'm, I'm going to put my hand to it I'm going to walk out what you called me to this is the one to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word aka is interrupted 
All right, so this last question, why are they flourishing? I thought I would end with a parable. It's a beautiful parable. It's sad, but it's illuminating. It's beautiful in that it's illuminating. Diagnostic. Mm. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He told this parable to some people that live like, live life like they hit a triple. Spiritually, physically, whatever. He doesn't distinguish because they're intertwined. They're intertwined. He told this parable to those who lived life like they hit a triple, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's a byproduct. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, poo, I hit a triple, didn't I? Did you see that? Mm. I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, this guy had been interrupted. This is what poverty of spirit looks like. This guy was interrupted. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm broke. There's a peppermint in there. I'm broke. I got nothing. I got nothing before you on my best day or my worst day. I'm absolutely, completely destitute. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this man, this poor man, who was also a tax collector, by the way, and had money, by the way, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector is, I think, who you'll be if you spend time alone with the Sermon on the Mount and get interrupted. It's simple, but it's excruciating. When the light of Christ's simple words... Shine in your dark corners. You'll see motives. You'll see intentions. You'll see pride. You'll see selfishness. And you're going to see just plain blindness. And when you see that and you begin to walk out what he's called you to, you're going to find a beautiful place of wonderful poverty. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that this man, this tax collector that walked away forgiven, I'm thankful it's this man that inherits the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm thankful that it's in bringing nothing to you, but bringing completely empty pockets and empty hands to you that we find riches. The riches of the person and work of Christ and a relationship with our King. Lord, I pray for this church right now that we'll be interrupted. And that in that interruption, we will experience together all the beauties of poverty. A gentleness with one another. A peace with one another. A love for one another. A generosity with one another. A care for one another. Lord, we ask you to work this in us for your glory. 
so we'll be salty in a decaying world and bright in a dark world. Praying these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.